Welcome to the Equalizer podcast. I'm Becky Morgan, your host for this week, and I'm here with Jeff Kasuf, founder and editor of Equalizer. And the we're here to talk about the semifinals for the NWSL that just took place on Sunday. But before we get into that, we need to talk about the big news out of the U.S. national team. And that is the news that Emma Hayes, Chelsea's head coach, will be taking over as the head coach of the national team. You know, Jeff, for folks on the outside, we had seen some shortlists. This seems like kind of a surprise because Emma's name wasn't on this. As someone who's been following this story really closely, was this a, a surprise to you? No, not not on Saturday. I mean, I think this was, you know, everybody that I spoke with, this was Emma Hayes was the choice for, you know, is the choice now, was the choice Saturday, uh, even if it's not announced as of this recording, it, it's happening. Um, and and that was the case a week ago, two weeks ago. It was, um, you know, I think it was kept under wraps quite well, obviously. But, uh, you know, this is, uh, I, I think, and I think a lot of people agree that, you know, the best available candidate, one of the best coaches in the world. I've, I've put my money where my mouth is in that sense and, and voted for her as such uh, throughout the years anyway, in, in the top three of the, the official FIFA vote. Uh, you look at what she's done at Chelsea, spectacular. You look at her as a, you know, tactician and a people manager a people person um you know of course people are people i mean everybody's gonna you know interact differently but i think you know she manages people empathetically while also being really demanding and and uh you know fierce at times even and i think that you know all of these qualities on and off the field are things that the u.s need right now so yeah i'm not surprised that she was the top choice. Wasn't surprised because I had started sort of hearing some of it and chasing that and obviously, you know, quickly reported once once Chelsea made the announcement themselves about her leaving. Uh, wasn't surprised in that sense at all. Um, you know, everything I've heard is is she was the clear top candidate. But, um, you know, I think the surprising part, maybe from a, a pessimistic U.S. fan's perspective, is that this process yielded the best possible candidate, right? And And I think that you know, that's a win for U.S. soccer, a win for Matt Crocker, a win for the U.S. national team, U.S. women's national team that, um, you know, this this there was some skepticism around what was this going to look like. Um, I, I think, you know, plenty of qualified coaches, right? I, I think the desire for a fresh start for a team that's really had a horrible World Cup and has a lot of really, I don't know if existential questions is the right way to phrase it, but, so, you know, the program itself has some really hard questions answered about its identity. You know, there's a lot of concern about that. And um, the idea of sort of like, if you look at the list of other potential candidates, and I heard others throughout this process, there was a search firm that identified candidates. My understanding is that those identified by the search firm didn't necessarily make it to the final, final round in, you know, the in-person Matt Crocker interview, um, you know, the final interview, but um, you know, Tony Gustafson was a candidate in 2019. Laura Harvey was the other finalist in 2019. Joe Montemurro was of some interest in 2019, but wasn't really, you know, explored for, for contractual reasons. So, you know, to, I, I think there was some pessimism around the idea that, okay, well, four years later, the candidates haven't changed then. Right. But, um, in reality, Emma Hayes was the choice anyway. And, and I think is the right choice as someone who's 
aware of the U.S. market, aware of the U.S. player pool, but has fresh ideas, is not tied to, you know, having worked with a bunch of these players at some point, obviously some of them, but um, doesn't have these these sort of preconceived notions or, or inherent biases that maybe somebody coming from returning to the program or coming from the, you know, the, the deeply rooted U.S. club system might have. So I think that that's the piece that, you know, is generally exciting. I don't think anybody expected to necessarily be excited here. And I think that's the general mood. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, from what you're saying, you don't seem to have any qualms with the fact that she has no international coaching experience. I know that some people have expressed a little worry that, oh, well, club coaches, as brilliant as they may be at the club level, don't always translate to the international level. But I mean, I think Hayes has proven herself, as you say, to be such a good people manager, to be such a good tactician that I I wouldn't necessarily have those concerns here. But what are your thoughts on that about changing? You know, it's a very different coaching job when you're working at the international level where you're not seeing these players day in and day out and building those relationships when you're managing them as a player. So so what do you think that role is going to be like? It is. It's it's a totally different job. Um, You know, I don't I don't think I have the concerns here with Hayes in the sense that she has experience, right? I mean, she has experience managing a big team in a, in a big setting, you know, obviously a champions league final never, or we should note starting in May, that's what I was getting to in terms of concerns. Um, I guess she's got one more shot at, you know, some of these things, but, uh, or the champions league being the big one, but you know, she has the experience, right? So I think you could look at a lot of people and say, well, where's the international experience? I mean, I think if you look at this, look at the pool of potential candidates and, Maybe for better or worse, assume that they're coming from a pre-existing women's soccer background, which maybe they shouldn't. I mean, that's I think that's a whole, uh, you know, good conversation to have. But um, who, you know, who necessarily would have brought that, right? I mean, Gustafsson was an assistant with the U.S. for two World Cup victories, is with Australia, um, you know. Everything that I was told is, you know, a big a big piece of this was U.S. soccer wants this person, this coach in the U.S. And that was a sticking point for Tony Gustafsson, as it was four years ago to a degree. And, you know, he's got all his Australian players in Europe. So Europe is uh, I mean, he's Swedish and he can he can spend a good chunk of time in Europe watching them and, you know, go to Australia when needed. And, you know, I think it's it's a good gig. Um and and there's a lot of things to figure out. Like, I mean, I mentioned Emma Hayes' background. Like, this U.S. team right now still has some really tough decisions to make with uh, veteran player pool, new players who need to come up. You know, it's almost like whoever came in right now needs that leeway to 2027 and also has to really sort of rock the boat a bit for the next 9 to 12 months, right? So um in a way maybe even more so than than Vakonanovsky did or was able to do so um yeah I, I think that you know I, I don't have a ton of concern about the international experience because I think she's got so much other experience she's got so much she is the right person in so many ways for the job I think the concern that you would have would be okay she's not starting until May I don't think I mean I, I know for a fact they haven't actually fully figured out the exact you know, what is this day-to-day going to look like? When is she coming in? When is she doing U.S. duties? When is she, I mean, she's still coaching Chelsea through May. So, you know, I I think you can very obviously look at that and say, you know, let's not forget there's a first, an inaugural gold cup in February into March. 
even if you want to dismiss that, there's the Olympics in June, uh, July, excuse me, in August. So I think you can look at this and pretty, pretty um, confidently conclude that the Olympics are not that they're not a priority for U.S. soccer, but they're clearly taking a backseat to let's get the right coach in here, the best coach for 2027. I think that's the right call, frankly. But if you have a concern, I think it's what does this look like for the next nine months, not just for Hayes, but for the U.S. player pool. And I think that's still TBD, frankly. Do you think the next nine months is going to be a lot of trying out new players in a way that maybe should have been done earlier with the U.S. player pool? And as you said, maybe uh, taking a hard look at veteran players? Or do you think that is going to wait until May, until Hayes actually gets here? Or do you think she's going to be making some of these calls from a a distance before she fully takes over? Yeah, she has to make them from a distance, right? I mean, the, the, the wait, I mean, we were all pretty riled up here, myself included, that you know, these past four games the U.S. played felt largely wasted, except for maybe that that final 45 minutes against Colombia in that second game. So um, I think she'll start the process, whether she needs to do it in the locker room on a on a rainy night in uh, Fort Lauderdale or she needs to do it, you know, over Zoom and and in training camp. You know what I mean? Like it, it's going to be made. Um, it has to be made. It, it has to be done. So. Yeah, I think those changes come. I do think that they're harder to make, you know, if you're not staring a player in the eyes and and having that hard conversation in camp. And we don't know. I mean, I, I think she'll be somewhere, right? I don't think she'll be fully absent. I don't think she'll be on uh, Zoom and phone calls for nine months. But yeah, she will certainly have her hands on this team because she's going to have to go do, you know, she, this team is expected to do something at the Olympics, whether there's you know, excuses aside about coaching change and awkward timing and whatever. I mean, you know, a a medal, I think, is still the bare minimum. And, you know, that said, 2027 is the goal. I think it'd be wise of U.S. soccer to maybe be upfront about that and and set those expectations. But, yeah, I think 2027, that's going to be the target. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not totally concerned. Um I don't mind that is the best way to put it. And I think this is the right hire. And and by the way, um, I mean, I'm reporting it here, reported it to a degree. um, Like this is, they went out and got the best coach and they're paying for her. Right. I mean, I think it's TBD if it's exactly the exact to the dollar of, of what Greg Berhalter is making for us men's coach, but everybody I've talked to, has has pegged this as a seven figure salary salary comparable with the men's national team coach, which is um, a big difference from what it was before when you know Lakonanovsky, Jill Ellis, uh, you know, pe- you know the, the women's national team coach was making roughly a quarter to a third of of what the men's national team coach was. Yeah, that is exciting to see that this investment is is happening. I I, I know I had a bit of a fear that. After this performance, the especially with the the tumult surrounding the women's team in general and their pushback against the federation, that I mean, who knew how the federation was going to react after this performance in the World Cup? Would they just continue to underinvest in the women's team, or were they going to say like, okay, now we're really going to to put the money into it and and go out and truly get the best coach we possibly can? And the fact that they have is very heartening to me. I'm very excited by this hire. I think it, it bodes well for the U.S.'s future um, as, as well as it possibly could. And and that's very exciting to me. But 
let's move on to discussing the semifinals that took place on Sunday. And let's start with the Gotham Portland match. That was frankly, a really exciting game. The weather could not have been worse, but that was, I think, exactly the kind of energy, the atmosphere, everything that you want to see from a nationally broadcast semifinal match. Um, Very back and forth play, got very physical at times. You know, even though it was nil-nil through the first extra time period you know it was still very edge of your seat you know you never lost your attention viewing what were your thoughts on this match as a whole yeah i think a great nil nil obviously until you know 107 minutes in defensive performance i mean look even individually ali krieger on one side with gotham becky sauerbrunn on the other with portland um you know pointing them out specifically but team defensive units obviously um you know, look, this was a, I think a really fun game. I think it was a good advertisement for the league in, in a lot of ways. The atmosphere in Portland was great. The game itself, you know, again, I mean, I've written about this. I think the the league gets a bad rap, an outdated, antiquated rap for being uh, this sort of kick and run league when it's not. And, you know, I think Gotham is among the teams that has helped this, this, this season. Certainly they're trying to, you know, last year was horrible, right? They're, they're trying to complete this worst to first, um, you know, is, is a team that has bucked that, that trend and, um, or, or really pushed back on that narrative. So, yeah, I think this was a great tactical matchup. I think it, that's exactly the game that Gotham wanted. You get, you get into sort of this chess match with Juan Carlos Amoros and his staff and, you know, the thorns, I think they have not been able to answer those types of things this year. And that was, you know, they got punched in the face, obviously, by Angel City to end the regular season. You look at Mike Norris makes a big call in goal, dropping Bella Bixby, number one keeper. I, I think you could argue ultimately was sort of a non-factor, that that decision. I don't think we, you know, there was nothing there where we said, oh, Shelby Hogan, Hogan made a mistake. I mean, the goal Katie Stengel scores, I don't know who's saving that, top 90, curling in. Um, that's more of a, if anything, defensive and, and frankly, not that this was not on Kelly Ubley, but like, you know, two minutes after Becky Sauerbrunn comes out 105 minutes of great play. It just so happens that, you know, Katie Stengel's hitting that from yeah. the top of the 18, given too much space. So, um, I, I think you look at Portland made big changes. Gotham made the right changes, which didn't look like many changes at all, but they were, if you were paying attention, right. Astaire dropping into almost a holding midfield role. Then at mid at halftime, she goes back up to the usual number nine role. That number nine role changes again. Katie Stengel comes in the fluidity there. Um, all of that played into Gotham's hands and, you know, they controlled that midfield. Yes. Portland had chances. I mean, look, you could also look, if you're a Thorns fan, you're looking at this and saying, well, Sophia Smith got played in behind twice, one V one or one V two or two V one. Um, you know, once, Mandy Hot comes up huge. The other time, Morgan Weaver scuffs a shot. There's two breakaways. That's exactly what you would have asked for as a Thorns team. And I, I would agree with that last piece. It's just that, you know, the Thorns tried to get into this chess match with the team that wanted to do that. And I think that they had the ability to hit over the top and behind on the counter in transition in a way that, that could have hurt Gotham. I mean, look at the end there where Ali Krieger gets the yellow card. A lot of talk of was that a red card up or, you know, was that a dog? So it was all the way up at midfield, but 
that was the point. It would have been a foot race between Ali Krieger and Sophia Smith. Even Sophia Smith coming off a, you know, an injury and and still getting back. We, we assume she's back to full enough health, but you know, is winning that foot race, right? So, um, I, I think those opportunities were there in a way that weren't necessarily explored in the best way or or um, you know, taken advantage of. So. You know, and then obviously, I think the international break played a, a role in those some of those lineup decisions with um, Sinclair and Sugita coming off the bench, and even Quika. I mean, you know, Quika is a big piece of this team, and on a, a team that has a lot of stars, maybe gets overlooked. And you know, she had a heavy international week. They go with Reina Reyes at fullback again. I don't know if you can sit there and say that's the reason they lost. No, but a, a lot of decisions made, some levers pulled, and I think that you know. Um, as the seasons for each of these teams have gone, Gotham pulled the right ones, and I'm not sure the Thorns did, or, or at least the you know the end result wasn't there. And as you said, you know this is the the second kind of disappointing result for the Thorns. You know they dropped the shield because they had that really bruising five one loss to Angel City, then had the bye week and the international break, so they've been off for a very long time. And then come in and, as you said, you know, especially towards the end of the game when they, you know, the, the, the beginning of, of the match was fairly even between the teams. And then the Port- Portland really, even if they didn't always get their shots off, really had the better chances towards the end of the match, despite the fact that Gotham ultimately got the goal off Katie Stengel. It was beautiful and won the match. But Portland just has not been together the way Portland typically is and particularly in the final third they just they were just were not connecting and part of that was with got was gotham's very strong defending but what does this overall this end of the season this this failure to get into the finals say about the trajectory portland's been on because there have been some questions about them all through the season what what do, where does portland go from here at this point yeah well that's a good question because i, I think that um you know the standards are high in Portland, right? And I think, you know, despite looking at, um, you know, you could look at this and say, well, basically one bad result, a very bad result from winning the Shield, right? And then you're, you know, you're one win away from a final. Um, but I think when you look at how this actually went throughout the year, um, I, it reminds me a little bit of their 2019 season where, you know, they they made the playoffs, you know, they were there and and the playoffs at that time were only, a, you know, you go right to a semifinal anyway, but you know, the feeling around the team was just not, not great. Right. And then, you know, some significant changes came and obviously, well, they were, they were paused, I guess, or prolonged by COVID by the start of the pandemic, but you know, that 2019 season where they go and lose in Chicago in the semi. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it reminds me of that a little bit. And, you know, I think that they're going to need changes, right? I mean, they're going to need, um, they're going to need some to figure some things out. They've got free agency. They've got, um, you know, their star players, I believe under contract for another year. Um, you've got an expansion draft coming and, and, you know, what is obviously an ownership change is at least as we've all been told or promised continually here that it'll be done by the end of the year. Um, despite, very little public movement on that. Um, so this is this is really another inflection point. And it's it's interesting because this is a team that's gone through quite a few now, right? I mean, Mark Parsons leaves. Rianne Wilkinson comes in, wins a championship. Then she leaves for 
you know, resigns after an investigation and, and um, you've got the ownership changes, all of that previously happening under the backdrop of, you know, the, the league's reckoning and a lot of that where Portland was an epicenter and a lot of, you know, pressure off the field on what's going on that led to what we just talked about with the ownership situation. So um, it, it's interesting. This team has sort of been in a sort of constant change and has worked through it and won a championship within it and, you know, typically wins trophies of some regard in, in any season. But yeah, I think this is, you know, there's a lot to answer here. Plenty of talent. Do, does everybody stick around? I, I mean, we'll see. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I think, I think there's some, some fresh ideas needed too. And, and just in like, what does this approach look like? Because I, I just, they haven't had the answers this year when they do get hit. I mean, they've had good stretches, you know, they've had good stretches of play. You need something more than, uh, as much as I just said, they needed to lean on Sophia Smith a little bit against Gotham, right? You need a little bit more than that when you are faced with the adversity. And I don't know if they've had those answers. I mean, Sam Coffey was great on Sunday and throughout the season, right? But uh, Morgan Weaver's underrated. The individual talent's there, but I, I don't think that they've necessarily responded. And, and that, that's the worrying part. The worrisome part is that I think back again to that game in the spring against Houston, they lost and they come off the field and, and, you know, they said, that's not the Thorns performance that looked nothing like us. And, and, you know, we're asking them, well, what was wrong? And, and nobody had the answer. Right. And that repeated itself. It repeated itself at some point mid season. It repeated itself after the angel city game mm-hmm. were their answers after this Gotham loss. You know, that that's where there have to be answers. Sure. Sure. And now let's switch to Gotham. They are, by every metric, a, a team that's transformed. And it's interesting because this is the second year in a row we've seen a team go from last place to the finals. Last year, it was Kansas City. It was absolutely in last place. And then in you know the Cinderella story of the season, made it all the way to the finals where they lost to the Thorns. And then this season, barely made it out of falling to last place again. Gotham seems different. This really seems like a transformed Gotham team to me, not a team that was riding a little more on luck and things falling their way in the way that Kansas City was last year, in in my opinion. As you said, just the way Amaros has transformed the team and just played the chess match so well, the fact that he was able to put in Stangle, you know, the, the moment Becky Sauerbund came out. You know, the, the the way that he transformed the bench and created such such depth on this team and created such a fully functioning, well-oiled machine to outlast opponents like the Thorns seems like this is a team built for the future, that this isn't going to be a one-off where Gotham, you know, depending on how they do in the final, will just, you know, fall to the bottom again next year. This is just a, a blip on their radar. How do you feel? I know this might be premature, obviously, because we haven't even hit the final yet. But just looking back over the four, or I'm sorry, Gotham's season and where they are now, are you that surprised that they've made it to the final? And and do you think that this is a new era for for Gotham and where they're going to head in the future? I am surprised. Um, I'll put my hand up that I was skeptical of how sustainable or how significant the change, you know, the change would be from a horrendous season last year. Um, you know. I agree that it feels more sustainable. There was the, the margin for error last year for Kansas city was, you know, I, I think um, indicative of what was to come. And obviously a lot happened there with, 
you know, in a, an early season, three games in, you fire Matt Potter, spend the whole season with an interim. You've got injuries galore. I still think injuries or not, there were some some issues with how that roster was constructed. But um, yeah, I think this is a more sustainable thing. Now, look, this is a league where any sustainability is difficult. So even to my, you know, again, to the point of criticizing where the thorns are at, the fact that they continue to be and really have been from the inaugural champions a decade ago, a perennial contender is is something in itself that most teams have not been. Even the rain back in the final three-time shield winner, you know, had some blips in the, those middle years um, where, you know, playoffs were out of picture and they, you know, obviously horrendous in 2013. So, you know, the, I think that sustainability is difficult. I do think that this team looks built for more sustainability in part because there's a coaching core there that, you know, I think, I think gets it um, and, and has it right. And that's, that's a big piece of it. Right. I mean, you gotta, I think historically we've had some great coaches in this league and I mean, we've had some coaches that are head scratchers and, and, you know, didn't last and, and it got proven that, you know, maybe it wasn't the greatest tire. So I think that they've got that piece. Um, they've got some young talent, obviously, you know, Jenna Nyswanger has has been great. Um, they've got people to build around in Lynn Williams with that that offseason acquisition. And, you know, Esther just came in, right? So um obviously Ali Krieger's retiring, but you know, I think I think there's a core there. It's not like the youngest team in the world, but I think that there's a sustainable core, whether that plays out in in a league that just never stops, right? I mean, every draft expansion in college, there's there's at least a blockbuster trade. And it's one that typically restructures some power a bit, shakes things up. Gotham was part of that, right? That was trading away the number one pick, dealing the number two again, ultimately brings in Yasmin Ryan um, and, and Lynn Williams on draft day. So, you know, that, that was Gotham's move last year. What happens this year? But yeah, I think that this is a team that looks um it, it's frankly a lot better than than i thought they would be yeah i mean I, I think they're they're playing with house money but obviously they're ready to win a title well let's move on to the second semifinal which was san diego versus ol rain and the shield curse strikes again because san diego fell to ol rain again in front of you know another great big crowd exactly the kind of crowd you want to see for a semifinal great environment again looks great for the league happy to see it i think the league might be disappointed that the uh the host team didn't make it all the way through but even so great game one zero match off a very improbable goal another one by veronica lotsko that was not a shot until it actually hit the back of the goal you know these were two teams that were fairly inconsistent through the season and this was another fairly evenly matched game where luck kind of tipped it over into a win. What were your general thoughts about this game? Did either team look that much more convincing to you than the other? Uh, yeah, I don't know about that because I, I do think San Diego had stretches where they really had their foot on the pedal and just couldn't finish um, or didn't not even couldn't finish as much as couldn't get to that final ball and final product. Um so yeah, I think that uh, I think this was a fairly even game. You know, I, I understand the disappointment if you're if you're the wave on losing on a Schross like that and and an admitted Schross by Veronica Latsko. Um 
you know, it's disappointing though. I mean, this is the shield winners, like you said, you know, I, I think that this, this is almost more disappointing than, than the thorns and that I think you could look and objectively coming into this game, say Portland has some issues here, you know, San Diego is, is a team that um, I think has put together the, the whole product throughout the season, home soil, one win to play a final on your home soil again, to to stay in your stadium. That's a, that's a huge disappointment, right? And I don't know what it is that they have not been able to beat the rain since they've entered the league. I, I don't know what the, uh, the kryptonite is there because, you know, even if you look at, I mean, like challenge cup games, the, the huge lineup rotation, like, you know, there's, it's not like everything's been exactly the same every time. So um, it's, it's a big disappointment for, for San Diego. And then, <clears throat> excuse me. And then for El Rain, you know, it was Veronica Latska that had the goal, but Rose Lavelle really had a phenomenal game. And I think that after a year of injury, people had maybe forgotten just how effective she can be on the ball in games and how much of a game changer she can be after struggling with an injury. So what can you say about the impact that she had in this game and, you know, how important she really was? Yeah, Rose Lavelle, hugely important, right? I mean, she hasn't started. It was her first start in two months, only just getting back to fitness. She's only played a handful of games this year, which is disappointing for her and the team, obviously. But you look at what she did on Sunday, just gliding through a wave midfield that, you know, is known to be pretty solid defensively. And, you know, I think that she really caused some trouble for San Diego. And and that was, you know, that was Rose Lavelle near her best. And, and that's what the rain need. And I think that could be a difference in the final. Fantastic. And then the last question I have is obviously the big buzz around this final that's coming up is the fact that it's Krieger versus Rapino in their final matches before their retirement. You know, these are two golden age players of the national team. You can't really get a better storyline than this. What is the importance of storylines like this in a league that's that's trying to grow, that's trying to to capture the public's attention? You know, how important is this? to to really capture the public's imagination and push this league forward into to really telling these driving stories. Yeah, well, story, I mean, sport is story, right? So I, I think it's huge for the casual fan because Rapino alone and her retirement, playing in a final for her final game, you can sell that to a global audience. And that's who you're, you know, we do a lot of talk about TV rights right now. I think impending news there, obviously, we've seen some of it leaked already anyway. Um Rapino, final game ever, playing in a final, playing for a championship she's never won. You can go sell that to national, international audience. And I think the league will be hoping for and expecting that that pushes them into maybe, you know, a million viewership in prime time on CBS. Now, to your point, maybe it's a little bit, I mean, it's that's still probably a harder sell than San Diego playing at home in the final, right? So, you know, maybe from a in-stadium perspective, you would have liked something, but you couldn't have had it, right? Because Rapino played in the semifinal. So um, I think as far as a TV audience goes, which is TV, but it's also digital, it's social, it's it's eyeballs that are casual fans. That's what this league needs. The league has the hardcore fan. It wants to be big time. It wants to be a major sport. It wants to be a major league. They need everybody else now. So Rapino, Rapino versus Krieger, you know, you market this right, which, you know, granted it's midweek almost already. So we'll see how well it's marketed to those people. But, um, 
you know, that's what you want to market to the casual fan to get them hooked. And then, then yeah, you've got to hope that you give them a product that keeps them coming back. Fantastic. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. We will be coming back with another Equalizer podcast right after the final for Equalizer. I'm Becky Morgan. We'd like to thank our producer, Jacqueline Purdy. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Bye.